always educating people to shop better. You know, I think it starts at the beginning. If you are going to shop from a retail store, I always think about the resale of that item before I buy it. Welcome to Fashion Cast, the fashion industry's premier podcast where we explore all things fashion, from designers and the latest styles to sustainability and breaking fashion news. We keep you informed. Now, enjoy the show with your hosts, Michael Gloucester and me, Christine Tuck-Tuck. Lauren Vaughn is founder and CEO of The Upside, Canada's largest luxury online consignment retailer. Launched in Calgary in 2015 to meet the domestic demand of luxury resale fashion, ease the costs of U.S. shipping and duty, and make a positive environmental impact, The Upside is the ultimate example of vision, savvy entrepreneurism, and personal commitment. Lauren is a graduate of the University of Calgary and interned for the distinguished Canadian fashion designer, Paul Hardy. After university, she spent two years in Paris, France, only to return to her Canadian roots and plant herself squarely on the frontier of fashion. Smart, humble, driven, and witty, Lauren Vaughn stands as an ideal role model for women across Canada and the world. Welcome to Fashion Cast, Lauren. Thank you for having me. So can you please tell our audience how and when you became interested in the world of fashion? I would love to. So I went to the University of Calgary and I took my Bachelor of Commerce majoring in marketing. And at that time, I, uh, there, was a, there is a phenomenal fashion designer in Canada named Paul Hardy. And he does great knits and he's very avant-garde at the time and still continues to produce these kind of classic staples for women that really elevates them and are powerful and elegant at the same time. And Paul's based in Calgary, which is rare because most fashion designers are in Toronto, Uh Montreal in Canada. Uh Yeah. And so he was based here. And so I continued to, I stalk him and email him. He never responded because I really wanted to experience what that was like. (laughs) And he didn't respond ever. You stayed persistent. (laughs) I stayed persistent. And actually a girlfriend at the time started dating this new guy. And she said, do you know Paul Hardy's having a cocktail party at his house? And I was like, can I come? (laughs) He answered the door and was like, hi, welcome. And I I pretty much was like, I'm Lauren. I've been emailing you. I'd like to be your intern. (laughs) Hi, I've been stalking you. (laughs) So I actually didn't give him an option. So he's like, oh, okay. I I guess you can come tomorrow. So that was my... Wow. That was worth the podcast interview right there. So that and yeah, and now he probably works for you. No, but we do sell his things. So I there is irony in it all. So we do resell his clothes and they sell quite well to women all over Canada. So we're giving these beautiful clothes a second life. That's we'll get into that. Uh but but yeah, I think the persistence in it, and you know, when young women email me today, I don't want to digress too much from from the conversation, but I I sometimes don't answer not the first email because I just think you know, when you really want something, and I think as an employer, an employee, an intern, a leader, you you, you have to want it. And so mm-hmm. that was with Paul. I always think back to that, like I, and as an opportunist or whatever, it happened and I didn't give him an option. And so that was my, how I got my experience in the fashion industry was, was working for, for free for Paul. And it, yeah, it was a really great experience. So That's after right. university, you had purchased a one-way ticket to Paris. Yes. How, that was after uh, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> that was How did the uh, fashion capital of the world influence your thoughts about a career in fashion? You know, when I was working with Paul, I was an intern, so I didn't get paid, but I did get to go to all of the fashion shows and the fashion week. So New York, Toronto, Paris, and the trade shows. So that really opened my eyes to what the world was. And I, I fell in love with Paris with rose colored glasses on, as I think mm. we can. And I, I worked and saved up my money. And after university, I bought a one-way ticket. 
And I would say it was eye-opening. I don't think that, you know, all of the the glam and the beauty and, and everything that surrounded what it looked like in my mind prior to moving there. I think it was just a reality check. Like people in the industry work really hard and they have to, you know, really want it. But I think what I realized is that there was tons of aspects to the fashion industry and I wasn't sure if I was going to fit in in the traditional sense you know, going through the fashion circuits and the designers and the seasons and staying on top of that. So I really learned that I, I was still interested in it, but I don't think that was my path necessarily. Well, as we found out, and you remember Christine, Mia and Julian on the show, who are based in Paris, photographers, it's taken them a long time, they're probably in their early 40s, it's taken them a long time to break into the fashion world inside Paris and to the industry. It's really about you know, like you say, knocking on doors and then being committed and then just taking whatever jobs and then just kind of working your way into that world. Yeah. Two years wouldn't have been enough. Yeah. You, you would have had some rosé taste testing kind of things going on. That was <laughs> yeah. enough, just enough yeah. time for that. But then, exactly. but then you came back. So you just said, this isn't it for me. I'll go back to Calgary and then I'll just light Canada on fire with a resale business. Is that basically what happened? Yeah, I think what I did learn in Paris is they had these, and I was on a budget, I had a finite budget, my French was never good enough to get a job. So my bank account was going one way, and it wasn't up. Um, So so living on Paris, you know, living in Paris on a budget, I mean, you can eat and drink for cheap, but everything else is not cheap. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, loving, still loving fashion and designers and learning how to shop on a budget and learning that you don't have to sacrifice. You didn't have to shop fast fashion. And they had these phenomenal resale shops or vintage shops. And there was no negative connotation around it. Women loved it. They were proud to wear it. You know, it was fine. It was unique. It was a treasure. And then, so when I moved back to Canada, I I didn't, it really seemed like there was a gap in the market where you had consignment stores, which was more thrifting. It was a kind of thrifting experience where they might have everything from Gap to Gucci but you really had to hunt, you know, you needed three hours out of your day to find that one prize or a few prizes, but there was just something lacking in, in the experience from the customer journey side for me. And, you know, at that time there had been companies that had started in the U S and they were growing quite quickly and were do, you know, kind of furthering their financing rounds. And I read an article, you know, in Bloomberg about these companies. And I thought, well, you know, that's weird. Why isn't there anything in Canada? So Mm. I started researching uh, about that time. So that was your aha moment when you wanted to launch the upside. Yeah, it was, you know, just trying to see what was out there for Canadians uh, and there was nothing. So I just want to finish the conversation about Paul Hardy. So you visited Paris with Paul Hardy. Is that right? At one time, And then you decided to move there and then you uncovered really this world of resale in Paris that was quite was doing quite well within that country. So then you came back and you decided, are there, and you say that Paul Hart, and, and we can get into this, who, who are the better high selling kind of designers on the site, but are there other designers that you have gravitated towards inside Canada other than Paul Hardy? Because Canada, quite frankly, has some dynamic fashion designers. You know, there are some phenomenal coat designers I like in Canada. On the site, the resale site, we've really seen that the more classic designers in Canada do well versus like the avant-garde really out there styles. So in general, I think our clientele, like Centelier does really well. 
So things like that we've seen have, have done a bit better for us. So we do tend to stick with designers that are a bit more well-known just because we know they'll probably move versus a very, you know, up and coming kind of, you know, unknown designer at the time. Let's talk about the upside. How did you come up with the name? A girlfriend and I had just been talking and we were talking it out and, you know, it's something that has really resonated with us because it's all upside. From a seller side, you're getting this seamless white glove experience to sell your gently used items for more than you would receive outside of doing it yourself. And then from a buyer side, you're receiving these new to very gently loved designer pieces for a fraction of retail. So I think we were just chit-chatting over a glass of rosé probably. And uh, it came out, you know, it's all upside. So it, it, oh. it's, yeah. And so we really found. <laughs> I like it. And it's easy. It's memorable. Yeah. And you know, the, the circular economy, there, there's really no downsides to it. And so. Oh, beautiful. We, we like, we like, we just saying it's all upside. And the amount of times we, we joke, it's our drinking game in the office. We don't have to drink. <laughs> we're like, ah, you said upside. <laughs> yeah. So, so what has been the biggest challenge in launching the business? Every step of the way. <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> but you're persistent, so I'm sure you will find a way. But it, but like you just said, there's all these upsides to it. So then, what did you hit a wall when you started asking for money, searching for money, trying to fund the business? When you say what are the challenges in starting a, a business, or ask that question, you know, I always think about when we first started and we had to find product. So. We went to our friends and our friends of friends and we said, can we, do you have stuff, you know, can we sell it for you? <laughs> you know, so we started crowdsourcing from our, you know, immediate circles and it grew out. And then we did a, a promotion where I think locally, if you would get a hundred dollar gift card to a retailer, if you consign 10 or more items. And so then, so we started getting the items and we thought, okay, this is awesome. This is great. And then it was like the moment of like, oh God, we have to sell these items now. <laughs> So like a two-sided supply chain where you have buyers and sellers, you always need the product to then sell the product. Getting started, that was a was kind of a rude awakening to us that we thought, yeah, we did it. We've got all these items. Woo! They're in my basement. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, what do we do now? We gotta sell them. <laughs> Obviously, you have to display them. So how are you doing that? Are you like taking pictures of each one? You're categorizing it. Is all this taking place in the basement of Lauren Vaughn in Calgary somewhere? <laughs> well, we're now in a 5,000 square foot warehouse, but initially, Whoa, yes, okay. yes, yeah. it was. There's some growth going on. Yeah. <laughs> so initially, it started in my basement. And then, you know, so we got the website. I called around and I said, I'm not a technical founder. I'm a you know, sales founder. Call, called around. I think I called 10 different people and I went with the second cheapest guy. <laughs> and it worked out. And it worked out okay. Without, you know, there's been a few bumps along the road. Um, but so we got our website and then we started photographing items. I found a local photographer who was willing, you know, and she was a student to take the photos. We were putting them on the site and then we were selling them. Was there a business plan to all of this? When you were having rosé with the girlfriend, did you guys, was it on the back of a napkin? Did you put a formal business plan together? Obviously not. I, I, it sounds like they just took it one step at a time. Yeah, I did have a business plan. I mean, I went to business school, so I had a general understanding of like, you know, if you have a product, people have to want to pay money for the product. And at some point it has to make sense economically, but it was, you know, it was just me at the time. So I I did have a plan, but I wasn't presenting it. It was all self-funded at the time. And it was one step at a time in that sense. And it was very organically grown. So you know, we talked about, we, okay, now the items are on the site, they're ready for sale. And I remember our first order from someone I didn't know. 
And it was from a, a woman in Edmonton. And I was like, oh, my God, we have an order. <laughs> I don't know this person. <laughs> That's and, so, it's it's so, Wayne Gretzky's So that just wife. motivated you yeah, even yeah. more, I'm sure. Yeah. And then, you know, you think, so I packed up this order so quick. I didn't even look. It was a handbag. I didn't even look inside the bag. I was just so excited <laughs> to get this out the door. Like, I'm, I did it. I did it. And, you know, four days later, whenever this woman received the bag, I get an email and it was like, um, I'm very disappointed with my order because I opened the bag and there's someone's hair in it. Oh, oh. no. And I was just shattered. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> because I didn't even look in to clean the inside of the bag or think because I was just so excited that like I succeeded. I did it. And I remember it was devastating that this woman then wanted to return her order. The first order I got. But so, did she end up returning it? Yeah, she does. Oh. <laughs> there you go. So that but that didn't stop you. So you just kept growing from there. And this you that you started this in 2015? At the end of 2015. So mm. November 2015. Mm. Well, it gives me goosebumps, doesn't it, to you, Christine? Because oh, you've yeah. Got, yeah, you got a real entrepreneur, someone who's just so passionate about what you're doing. And I love that. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what kind of widget you're selling or doing or making or you know, trying to change. Um, that industry. So I'm interested because you had this idea, you had this plan, you now it's up and running. Did you ever sit back and think, what's the real mission here? Is there a mission or is this just a business and I'm going to sell it at some point? Or is there a mission related to this? I love that question. And that's something that I've sat with over the years and continues to evolve. Because when I first started, I can say, honestly, that it, the mission probably was just I love Gucci. I love a great handbag. Can't afford it retail, you know, you know, at the time in my life um, or a great outfit. So how can I make that more accessible to, to people, myself included? <laughs> but as, you know, four, four and a half years later, and as we've grown and evolved and we have a team, that mission has changed so much more to me as we've seen the realities of fast fashion, the reality that the fashion and the textile industry is the second largest global polluter. The reality that if you buy one item secondhand, it can reduce its carbon footprint by up to 80%. The reality that women work so hard for every dollar they make, and I want them to know the power in what they're investing in, the power in the retained value of what sits in their closet, and really understand that through a circular economy, I believe it's our only way forward in fashion. Um, is some sense of a secondary marketplace for these items that are be de- being developed new and just really empowering women to just to feel good, buy what you want, you know, but but understand that that when you're done with it or if it didn't quite feel right or you didn't feel how you wanted to in it, that you can get money back and then buy something else that you're going to love. So so the mission has evolved a lot from when it, and it continues to. And that's something that's myself and I know our team are, are really passionate about. Mm. Speaking of empowering women, you're a role model for women in the industry across the world. And in this $3 trillion industry, it's stricken with gender inequity at every level. What ongoing challenges do women face in the industry? And are you confident women will prevail? I am so confident women will prevail, you know, and I think getting involved in groups that support women in the fashion industry and entrepreneurial industries or any industry, whatever women are in is so important because it's really crucial. And it was for me, you know, when we were fundraising, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do as a woman that you're meeting with 99% of men pitching men on an industry that they don't probably understand or relate to. Mm -hmm. And it was finding a group of women, they're national in Canada called the 51 
And they're a financial feminism group of women that help empower other business owners and women. And, and so that is, was so crucial to me to be connected with these women at that time and continue um, from an investment perspective, from a mentor perspective to really learn and just surround yourself with other women in the same boat, because it can be lonely and isolating when you think you're the only person experiencing those inequities. Mm, What did you say it's called? The 51? The 51. Hmm. I got to look into that. Yeah, it's really neat. The amount is that women are 51% of the population. um, Oh, that's where they got the name. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. I like that. See, Very, very clever. So the mission then, as I hear, there's a feminist tilt towards the mission, which I like a lot. I think that makes a lot of sense and it really fits what you're doing. And then clearly the sustainability circular fashion, which until COVID-19 was like the biggest thing going in fashion. Now it's, it's really a message of survivability and, and suddenly environmentalism and sustainability and circular fashion and the circular economy, all of that has kind of fallen off the page. But I understand that too. So I love both of those missions with regard to what you're trying to do. We're a little bit concerned about what's happened in terms of COVID-19 and then the impact on women across the industry and across the world in the industry. So as you know, there's probably 50 million workers in the industry in Asia making all kinds of garments and all kinds of different uh, fashion items. And, you know, 80% of them are women and they're out of a job like that because of COVID-19. Then of course, across the board, designers out of the job, look at New York, the fashion media, everyone's been decimated in the industry. And most of those people are women. So that comes back to some of your message. I think that you have a, you have a future leadership role. You were, you've just been elected, you know, or appointed. Okay. I'll take it. I'll I'll get my crown off. It's sad. And you're right. And it's, it's very sad. You know, we know COVID has disproportionately affected women and I intake my fashion news from business of fashion. Again, I don't have a traditional supply chain model, but I do, I do read on, on how this is happening. And especially in, you know, countries where garment making is, you know, their primary industry. And it's really sad. And you know, you feel helpless, but we've all kind of, I think, and I've been doing my part to just try and read and stay knowledgeable on what's happening. And if there are ways I can help, you know, contribute or at least spread the word of of how we can. I think what our objective is, and just talking about this is post COVID-19, have there been lessons learned? And will anything change? You know, so it's a very hard industry. It's so big. And there's so many cottage industry attached to the fashion industry in general, that we're just hopeful that things will change. And I think we're not just hopeful, we want to try to, you know, push that whole agenda along. But speaking of that, because it's so competitive, it was funny, because I was doing research about this industry. And I thought generally, I know it's competitive, because there's the real, real, you know, over here, Poshmark's kind of a, a, a different animal. But like you said, there's a number of different companies that are doing this. But what was interesting is that some of the own luxury companies, you know, are actually setting up their own business too. And that keeps their name in front and they have a little bit more control. So it seems to me you've got an incredible business, but you let me and Christine know, is it as competitive as we think it is? So you named, you know, a few big players for sure. You know, in the U.S., there's, you know, Fashion File. Uh, thread up, which is Gap to Gucci, the real, real, 
and, and then there's in Europe, you know, so you've got best year. It is a competitive industry. You know, this industry is growing. The secondhand industry is going to be, you know, a $52 billion industry by 2022. And the largest growing portion is resale. So that's not thrifting, but that's, you know, the industry I'm in. And it's growing at something like 30% year over year. And I, I just read an article that it's actually pegged to grow quicker because of COVID. Because once we get out of this, people's shopping habits will change. And you talked mm-hmm. about that. And I think some for the good, right? And I hope the industry changes some for the good. And I hope it recovers in the areas that it needs to recover, but that we can take a step back and see where we actually think shifts should happen, you know, globally for the economy, for the betterment of everyone that's involved in the industry. So it is a very competitive industry. It's growing very quickly. And um, when we think about Canadians and our, um, what makes it disadvantageous for us to shop from the real, real, there's a lot, you know? And so it's really for us focusing on how can we look at our markets and grow in our market the best we can, you know, where there isn't exchange rate, duties, shipping, you know, and start and grow here. And once we get to, you know, a place that we feel we can expand outside of Canada, or that the Canadian market, you know, has been grown enough, then then we would look at that internationally. But um, as far as homegrown, there isn't a lot of competition. There's smaller businesses, you know, women selling on Instagram or Kijiji mm-hmm. and and things like that. So there's been a ton of those, you know, I think that we've seen people have tried to capitalize on their closets themselves. And that's great. You know, if people have the time and the wherewithal and and the energy to do it, that's a wonderful option as well. And, you know, for us, we have really leaned into the digitizing of women's closets. So we've invested heavily in the technology, because we believe this industry is not going away. And so we are looking to get to a place where, you know, potentially we could license software to people. Really? Companies? Yeah. I love um, that. I love that idea. Yeah. So what that looks like, I mean, it's it's all kind of under the hood right now and there's lots of <laughs> great anymore. conversations happening. <laughs> well, yeah. Not anymore. In the last year, an average of 70% of a woman's, a Canadian woman's closet went unworn. 70%. Wow. So that's crazy. So how do we make it as seamless and as easy as possible to push and pull from women's closets, creating, you know, this very fluid idea of ownership? Uh, and, you know, things like the rental business and stuff like that, you know, I, that that kind of is in there, too. But, you know, I, I believe the way of the future is that the secondhand or resale industry won't necessarily be compartmentalized in people's minds as doing something different, but just an active act of when they're shopping. Like, it'll just be something they check first, you know, before. Do they have something that I'm lo- looking for on there? Uh, if not, OK, maybe I'll try this site or this store. But, I, you know, I do see it just becoming a part of our everyday of people looking at this as an option when they're, when they're looking to add to their wardrobe. So I just wanted to go back for one second with regard to the technology, because I think that's a critical point. I mean, you're going to beat the hell out of me if I start the same business, because I'm not going to be able to spend the money on technology that you already have, you know, so you're way ahead of the curve. You know, I don't want you to give away the secret sauce or whatever. You don't have to do that. But do you see, some of these kind of automatic decisions and AI being involved in this. So if I'm picking through, you know, the upside and I see this, will it ask me, are you sure you don't need this too? Or will it say that goes with this? Will it participate in my purchasing? Yeah. So there's, you, you nailed it. There's the AI on the product recognition or product suggesting, which exists out there and you can implement that in, you know, so there's an aspect of that as a buyer, but what we're really interested in is how do we 
through AI or image recognition, digitize someone's closet. So you could essentially take a photo of your closet and we can now know approximately how many dresses you have, what average dresses go for, what you could earn, how, you know, are you ready to part with it? Suggest different ways that what you have, what we have in our inventory could go with what you have. So really kind of connecting the two sides of it and making it not just a push, not just buy, 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 you know, we're really interested in what, in what's kind of in that aspect of the business. I know Christine and I have talked about different things related to this type of business, not necessarily resale, but it's, it's actually having like, and I'll just say it because it's not that complicated, but you know, like a little avatar person who is trying on so that you can match that avatar to your, your body type, because obviously not everybody's a two, not everybody's an 18, you're selling across the line. So if you have the little avatar and you can go in the corner and you can see what it may look like on you. So that's where I think some of this is going towards, you know, I've got to have, you want them to hang out on the site. Mm -hmm. And you also want them to, you want to make it a good experience where they don't have to return items as much because more people are shopping online, like you say, and especially all these stores that are closing like JCPenney and Nordstrom, more people will be shopping online. Yeah, of course. And all of, you know, when we're talking about this, it's only really been applied to the retail industry. So we're, we're really interested in how we apply these to the resale industry as well to create that same experience. But I just want to go back and finish this COVID-19 stuff because, you know, and Christine and I go back and forth. Like every day we email and say, oh, looks like uh, Nima Marcus is going to go down. JC Penny's gone. Uh, They're dropping like flies. You know, on and on and on and on. And sure, it hasn't yet hit luxury, luxury, kind of the stuff that you're involved in. Nevertheless, I got to think that this is a boom for Lauren Vaughn in the middle of Calgary, you know, because I still want to participate in the luxury, but I may have lost my job or now I've got unemployment or whatever. Are you seeing an uptick in your business? I agree with you. There's a few points there. The one that I think as we move through this, the resale industry is going to be, you know, look quite good from both a buyer and a seller side for all the reasons that you mentioned for how people have been, you know, hit economically with COVID and, and to watch all these, you know, big box chain stores go into bankruptcy or receivership, it's really shocking. So for us, we have seen March was really tough and that was really scary for us. We were down tremendously and we didn't know what that would look like after, but I think March was really scary for everyone because no one knew. So no one was buying a Louis Vuitton handbag. They were buying toilet paper and can soup. Pretty much. <laughs> they're buying face they're still doing that. <laughs> yeah, they're still buying, you know, so that was a scary month. But I think once people started to understand this isn't 14 days, this isn't 28 days, this is our new reality and what the new normal looks like. You know, April was great. We were down slightly from last year, but May we're actually probably going to be about 20 to 30% up from last year. Wow. So you made up for March somewhat. Somewhat. So initially you started as an e-commerce business. So now are you getting more into the retail side? So when we started, it was my idea, you know, that we were going to be e-commerce and that was it. And we have a great site and people only shop on there. And over the years, we saw clientele want to be able to come and experience. And I think it's very important, especially in the resale industry, because there is an educational piece. A lot of clients we still get or have never consigned, have never bought consignment. So when we're dealing with these newer industries, people need to experience what they're buying because there's hesitancy when it's just online. So when it was my basement and a girlfriend's basement, and then we were in this warehouse space and industrial area in Calgary, 
We had always had a retail components to it and it, it was never on brand or felt like us, but it was just what the people, the people wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> the people were people asking. We gave the people yeah, what they a wanted. Bit of both. Yeah. So we've actually just moved in at the beginning of May to a beautiful space that we have. It's about 4,500 square feet and 1,100 of it is a retail space. So we have built out this very on-brand concept of where we will show off the best of the best and great pieces at the front. There's a consignment bar where you can come and sit and and consign your items and speak with one of our experts to, to learn about the process. And then in the back, we have this whole warehouse space where the majority of items are stored and then our offices are there as well. But those pieces in front, they're still for sale online, are they not? Yes. Yeah. No, they're for sale online. What we're going to do is create this customer journey where you can come and learn and touch and feel. And you can see with gloves on and a mask, um, (laughs) (laughs) what you see is what you get. And there is just, again, we, you know, I read a stat that if someone comes in and shops at your store, they're three times more likely to buy online because they now have that consumer confidence that they know what they're buying is, you know, what they see is what they're going to get, which resale and e-commerce, I think is something that it takes a bit to, for people to get to that point. I agree, but I, am I, I hope I'm not hearing you say, I'm going to eventually be brick and mortar and e-commerce. Is that what you're saying? Or you could have a few shops around the country. That makes more sense rather than, you know, are you going to be another Macy's? You know, wow. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no. So it's that understanding of, you know, and we've seen in com- like customer acquisition online and digital marketing, it's sometimes more advantageous to have a small retail bricks and mortar space where you can get eyeballs on your brand and people get it, then it is to be spending the money, you know, in Google AdWords and Facebook to get these same customers. So it's the, I think there's a sweet spot and a combination of what that looks like, but no, you know, retail will never be our focus. What we want to create is that customer experience where they understand who we are, what we're doing, um, they can buy the products there, but a large portion will likely be people buying online than just wanting to come pick up. Yeah. And speaking of buying online with regard to this whole technology piece that, that I love what you're doing because you're really pushing the whole technology platform. What about mobile? Is that part of this platform that you're spending on? Yeah, so we've created where our website is mobile friendly. We haven't set out to create an app in itself yet. So that's mm-hmm. something that that we've talked about and it's still in the works if we're going to go that path or not. But mobile, I think it's like 70% of people who are on the site are either on an iPad or a phone. So we do track that and want to make sure that the experience is is usable from a mobile. What percentage of the sales that are coming through the upside are Canada-based? Is there anything outside of the country? Yeah. So we have about right now 5% of sales coming through are from the U.S. For a U.S. customer, it makes a lot of sense with the concert, the currency exchange. So yeah, that's something we also, yeah. yeah. So there's a major buy advantage from the U S and it's a massive market. So for us, when we talk about differentiating, you know, with all these other companies, of course there is our mission and our brand and what we stand for, but there's a huge buy advantage to shop from the upside versus say the real, real, if you're, if you're a U.S. consumer. Are you advertising that? Are you promoting it? Actually, there's a a grant program called Canax where the government supports Canadian companies looking to export. So so we're actually going through that right now and looking at what we can just receive in funding to explore marketing to the U.S. Christine, how do we invest in the outside? (laughs) We do that today. Yeah, I mean, talk about kind of, that. The story As any entrepreneur keeps, would say, we will take your money. <laughs> <laughs> this the story just keeps getting better. And I know because I have 
some property in Canada and I have a bank account there. And I mean, I just put money in there was, I got a 40% exchange rate. It's beautiful for us. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful. No, I love that. So what are some of the myths about, you know, luxury resale fashion market? You know, you hear people say, geez, I, I don't know if I want to wear someone else's clothes or now with COVID-19, did Lauren Vaughn clean this stuff off? She mm-hmm. sold some purse with had hair in it at one time. And now <laughs> what who knows that? what's going on? I mean, what are the, yeah, what what's your plan myths? now? I know the things you learn in five years, look inside the bag before you ship it. <laughs> Lesson number one. I think, you know, COVID has really created just best practices and what that looks like. You know, the data is very confusing and misleading um, in a lot of aspects of this virus, but as well as how long it stays on clothing and metal and services. So we've, you know, all of our staff, when they're going through clients items, wear gloves, we wear masks, you know, we always make sure that an item has been warehoused for 24 hours before it's shipped out for any precautions. So, so we have taken, you know, steps and looked at what are our best practices moving forward. But I think initially there might've been some fear of of buying someone else's item, but I I don't, Yeah, it's not showing that anymore from our sales. So yeah. But as of yet yesterday, the CDC now says that it's not going to, it doesn't last on surfaces as long as they thought, you know, yeah, so yeah. I didn't even know that, in fact. So that was, was all, just yesterday. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, changes every day. I wanted to explore this a little further. One of your other missions was the whole environmental thing, which I can't, you kind of swerved into, right? You kind of went into the business and then you realized the total impact of what you're doing in terms of the environment. So have you become educated more about circular fashion just because of this business or were you already educated? Are you using this whole circular fashion, environmental sustainability as part of your messaging too? So initially, no. Five years ago, no. You know, that wasn't on anyone's minds <laughs> when we started. Well, that's not true. There were people and there have been people that have been major advocates of consignment for 20 years, you know, but I think as far as mainstream, we've just seen more and more in these past few years, you know, looking at the downfalls of fast fashion, you know, there's been a lot of documentaries out about what that actually looks like and the human impacts of of fast fashion. We've seen, you know, this idea that by creating a secondary market for these items that would traditionally either sit in your closet or I don't know, be thrown out or given away. Uh, and, and what we, we deal with generally higher end designer items. So, so they do retain a value where I'm always educating people to shop better. You know, I think it starts at the beginning. If you are going to shop from a retail store, I always think about the resale of that item before I buy it. So is it better to spend a bit more on that item, you know, but you know, it's going to retain value than to get something off the cheap. You know, it's very bad for the environment. The human implications are quite sad and dire. And then at the end, it's going in the garbage. So I think, you know, when you think of resale and consignment and secondary industries, it starts from the beginning and you just have to be, I believe, you know, thoughtful. And we're trying to educate uh, people that that's where, that's where it starts is to, you know, from the first time it's purchased. And then, you know, we've seen, you know, over these past few years as well, this just be a way that I think is attainable for people in their everyday to make a difference. So we compost, we recycle, you know, there's ways that, you know, if you're looking at consignment stores or resale sites, you know that by buying these items, you are reducing the carbon impact of them versus buying something new. And for me, that just felt like something I could do very quite seamlessly without it, it being a big overhaul in my life. You know, I would say before, you're not going to stop taking a, a plane to your family vacation, which right now, I guess you are, but <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. no one's... <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, you, you're not going to stop doing things and you're, you're not going to stop living. But if you can make an impact by making small decisions, you know, it's about consistency, not perfection. So I think that's just something that is really good for people. And I practice myself. So one of the things I think Kristen and I have talked about many, many times, and it's hard, you kind of get to this answer after talking about it so long and thinking about it and interviewing people is that it's going to be a lot harder to educate the public to be conscious of what they're purchasing than it is to say, forget that and go to the industry and say, you people are manufacturing it, manufacture it from a sustainable point of view. It, that's going to be a lot easier, although it's obvious there's all kinds of barriers there too. But that's going to be the easier that I think that you'll actually make some some impact in terms of the environmental movement. But I love, love, love your whole message. Are you saying that what's happening within the upside is being mapped over into other areas of the business too, in terms of recycling, in terms of packaging, in terms of logistics and all of that? As we've grown and we've evolved and these impacts become greater that that we're focusing on more. So the sustainable packaging, you know, it's, it doesn't look good. Can you, will it weather? We live in Canada, you know, is it (laughs) going to survive a snowstorm when the postman's talking it around? So, you know, we are exploring, you know, having something that is sustainable, but it has has to be functional as well for us. So that's something that we continue to dive into, you know, our tissue paper is all from recycled material. So, so we're doing our best, but that's something we are going to continue to do and need to really lean into as well. So Lauren, what are some of the best-selling luxury items or categories on the upside? And uh, why do you think they're some of the best-selling items? In resale, I always tell people anything that's classic. So anything that's not going to go out of style is going to retain its value better. So a great Burberry trench, uh, classic pair of Louboutins, you know, Louis Vuitton, Chanel. You know, we see price increases in some of these really high-end brands every year. And they just did another one, mm-hmm. um, you know, so... Anything like that is going to be a really great investment piece and as well moves really well on the site. So are those value driven or are they seasonally driven or are they brand driven? Is it constantly changing or is it Louis Vuitton and we know it's always going to be at the top? It's pretty consistently brand driven for some of those big names. We know in general by brand, you know, which items are going to hold their value and not. We also see a lot of movement in the contemporary high-end space and you can get those pieces out of value, right? So when we talk about, you know, Rag and Bone or APC, ALC, Alice and Olivia, these are great fun brands that people love to wear and they feel good. And when you buy them resale, they're quite affordable. So what about accessories versus apparel? You know, what's doing better? So statistically, what drives people to the site is things like Chanel, Gucci, what people are buying is apparel, accessories, so things that are at a more entry-level price point. So there, it's always interesting what the drivers are you know, to bring people there and then what, what's actually converting. Uh, that's not to say people won't buy a Louis Vuitton handbag, but generally when we look at what the conversions look like, the drivers to get there is the high-end searches or the handbags. But what people are purchasing on a regular basis is a great new pair of shoes for spring an accessory, you know, a nice new dress. So, and then we see, you know, those bigger, bigger purchases, of course, are in there as well, but there is a difference in the drivers. So if you're thinking of buying something on a consignment basis and someone has a handbag versus a piece of apparel and you can only buy one, which one would you rather have that you think is going to move 
If you're buying, handbags are going to retain their value the best. So as a buyer standpoint, if you know, you're always going to want to invest in the higher end pieces like handbags and some fine jewelry as well, like designer jewelry will retain its value. Clothes are kind of like the car you drive off the lot, right? Unfortunately. So just because you spent $2,500 or 20, you know, 2,500 on a Dolce dress you wore to your cousin's wedding in Venice. <laughs> unfortunately, eventually, you're not going to see that money again. So it'll eventually right? <laughs> Always very quickly mm-hmm. and a lot. Mm-hmm. What are you reluctant to purchase and put on the site? It'd probably be denim. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Do you believe that, Christine? No. God, don't tell that to our, our friend down at Detroit Denim, man. No, I, I wear denim all the time. I am a jeans girl. I actually have my sweatpants underneath my silk shirt. But uh, no, I'm a denim, but it just, it doesn't hold its value. Mm-hmm. It's super expensive to buy, right? Mm-hmm. You like the retail prices of denim. I always almost fall over. I sometimes go shopping just to check out, you know, what the prices are new and stuff. And I always almost fall over when I see what the price of denim is now. <laughs> but it doesn't retain its value. It's hard to move. It's so that's one that we, we have become more and more strict about what we'll take. And we usually won't take very much. See how much I learned today. That's unbelievable. (laughs) And it goes for next to nothing. So buy your denim from a consignment store. (laughs) Okay. That's good to know. So you met one of the top designers in Canada, Paul Hardy. Who else would you like to meet and why? I think Carl Lagerfeld would have been the most amazing. (laughs) I think we wouldn't have died to get the opportunity to meet him. Yeah, that's Um, You know, I think I'd love to be a very interesting guy. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, the founder of the real, real, she's a female founder. She initially started pets.com and the com boom and then bust. And then she set out to found the real, real and it's went public last year. So I think I'd I'd be fascinated to meet her as a female entrepreneur in this space. And I can only imagine the war story she has. So maybe we can arrange that. Michael, you work on that. Let me know. I'll be there with Rosé. Yeah, we'll be there with Rosé. <laughs> well, Christy, maybe you can introduce Lauren to Jean-Paul Gaultier, your friend over in Paris. <laughs> That's funny. We'll have Iris that do that. Awesome. Or uh, Mia McFarland. Yeah, 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 for sure. So do you have any parting advice for those interested in the world of fashion or business in general, Lauren Vaughn? You know, I'll speak to women in business. I would say it's harder than you think it's going to be, but it's worth it. So, you know, persevere and surround yourself by other women who have been through it or are going through it. Um, and I hope to see more women starting businesses in the resale industry or other industries. So so it's harder than you think. That's the, your partnering advice. Yeah. Well, or maybe you don't think. I didn't think. Just <laughs> 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 probably the best for everybody. <laughs> Actually, that's really good parting advice. So Lauren Bond, it has been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you appear on FashionCast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us on our website at fashioncastpodcast.com. I'm Christine. And I'm Michael. Stay beautiful.